You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I just want to give you one final reminder about our annual audience survey. Now, I've mentioned this throughout the month, but every year we conduct an audience survey to learn more about you, to get your feedback, and to really help shape Revision Path for the future. Revision Path has went through a lot of changes in the past year. We've joined the network here at Glitch. And so we really want to hear from you. What do you think about it? What can we change on the show? What do you like? What do you not like? Uh, To take the survey, just go to revisionpath.com forward slash survey. It takes about five minutes or so to finish the survey, and it really, really would help us out a lot. Again, that's revisionpath.com forward slash survey. The survey is going to close at midnight Eastern time on May the 1st, and we'll put a link in the show notes as well. Also, I talked about this a few episodes ago. Actually, I talked about it in the last episode. But me, Maurice Cherry, I'm putting together a design anthology with Envision called Recognize, a group of essays and commentary on design from indigenous people and people of color. Now, we initially had the deadline for April 15th. We extended it a few days. It's actually coming up very quickly. It's tomorrow, (laughs) April 30th. So in case you still need to sort of put those last finishing touches on your submission, go ahead and do that and send it in. Um, If you want to send something in, if you're just now hearing about it now, you don't have much time, but go to recognize.design, check out the about page, check out our no harm guidelines and send us your work. The theme is space. You can take that any way you want to as a metaphor, as a title, etc. Your essay can be up to 3,000 words, so you don't have to write something super long. Just send it in to us. Again, recognize.design. That's the URL. The deadline's coming up April 30th. Now for this week's interview. We're wrapping up April here at Revision Path by talking with design evangelist Melvin Hale. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. Hey there. Uh, my name is Melvin Hale. I am a product designer at Facebook. Uh, been here for a short while. Previous to that, I was design lead on Google Maps and spent a little time on YouTube as well. Uh, been in the design industry for quite a while <laughs> and live in beautiful, sunny California. Now, I have to ask about Facebook. Well, one, they're a sponsor of the show and we've had you know product designers from facebook on the show before as well but i'm curious with you kind of just being there in this new capacity uh what's it what's it like for you i mean especially coming from the the history that you have what is it like working at a company like facebook um it's refreshing uh you know i never charted this out in my career uh even landing at google it was never in the charts it was never a plan it was all kind of going with what the universe said, this is where you need to be. And I remember coming here and seeing the team and meeting, you know, the different design leads and directors. It felt like home. And uh, contrary to what people might read in the news and, you know, there's been some negative press, there are a group of passionate individuals here that are trying their best 
to do right by the user, but right do right by consumers and the experience um, to make sure that it is all cohesive and that we are transparent and that the platform is delightful to use. Uh, that That's the number one thing I love about being here. The design is integral to the platform. Everything that we do here revolves around good quality design, excellent execution, um, and well thought out ideas. Now, aside from it being that kind of refreshing change in terms of what you've just uh, spoken on, how is it different from some of the other places that you've worked, particularly out there in the Valley? How has it been different? The, the biggest difference I can definitely say is the emphasis on design. Uh, Facebook is not engineering-led. There is a heavy emphasis put on design and execution and quality and craft. Uh, those elements make up the bedrock of the experience here at Facebook. Uh, if you're looking for a company that's more driven by engineering and capabilities and utility, that's not necessarily Facebook. Hmm. Facebook's goal is to push the boundaries of what is possible in design and stretch engineering to push and make new things. So it's, it's fascinating to see uh, what's being done here. Um, you know, you could look at look back in, in the past at paper when they, that first launched. And in order to make that product a success, they built a prototyping tool to help bring that concept to life. Now, while paper no longer exists, that prototyping tool has evolved into a very powerful tool to use within the, the organization and outside. So it, it, the, the company is always pushing the envelope, and I find that fascinating. Very cool. Very cool. So you're out in Sunnyvale right now, but you're also originally from California. Is that right? From a little bit further south. Is that right? Yeah. Well, actually further north. Yes. Uh, Vallejo. Oh, further north. Oh, that's right. You're in Sunnyvale. Yeah. So you're from Vallejo. Yeah. The V-A-L-L-E-J-O. Oh. I'm familiar with it. <laughs> well, I, I spent a summer in uh, in San Francisco when I was like... 19 and i think we went like all up and down the bay so i've i've heard about vallejo but why don't you describe vallejo for the audience like what was it like for you growing up there oh man um vallejo set the tone for what i believed america could be or what i thought america was which was a melting pot of cultures and working class middle class americans doing their thing and it didn't matter your race or gender or anything. As long as you were down, no one really cared. You know, I had friends from all walks of life. Um, and we had a great time, great time growing up. And to this day, I'm still friends with a lot of those folks. You know, even after I left around 17 mm -hmm. and then came, what, you know, 20 odd or more years later. But to say I was from there, to say that, yeah, I went to school with E40. He was you know, um, a senior exiting as I was coming in. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it's amazing to be a part of that history. Um, the school we no longer exists anymore. Um, the town has changed quite a bit. Not necessarily for the better, <laughs> but it has changed. But it's a great, small, quaint town with beautiful modern homes. It's nice. I'm, I, I love I love Vallejo. So while you, you know, were growing up, I'm curious to know, when did you kind of first get this... Uh, the spark that design was something that you wanted to do for a living. Mm. 
you know, it, it never really hit when I was growing up. I, I didn't know that's what I wanted to do. Um, in fact, I thought I wanted to be a rapper. Like that was my goal. Okay. Because um, I had, you know, everyone around me was rapping, and you know, in in art class, I sat next to this guy uh, Jamal Rocker, aka Mac Ball, and he had an album, dropped mm-hmm. several, and still dropping albums. So I figured, I guess that's what I have to do next. The unfortunate thing is, I was terrible at it. I was terrible. You know? <laughs> um, and. So that quickly dried up. So past that, I didn't know what to do with my skills in drawing or illustration. I, you know, I didn't know if that was a career I could take. And it took many years for me to get to the the point of deciding, oh, design is where I want to be at. Um, and that wasn't until my early 20s. Yeah. Mm. yeah it took a while. Um, but I saw everything in between. And that's I think that's what, what what has helped in my career. I know I'm, I'm deviating a little bit, but just, you know, it, I didn't pick up design until much later, but all the jobs that I had prior to that in the service industry, I was a, a 411 operator for a while. I valeted cars. I worked in construction. You know, I did all these different jobs so that when I finally said, I'm going to commit myself to the corporate life and then eventually into design and then learning more about design and teaching myself how to code and teaching myself what is a good grid layout, um, that that transformed me. So I, I kept this humble nature, but was always hungry and always hustling to keep moving down that line. Mm-hmm. And that's led me to where I am today. And, I, and I've, I've found that the, that spark was ignited once I discovered the design industry. It was like, oh, there's so much I could do with this. And there's so many things I can, so many ways I could take this. Well, also, I think, you know, back then there just weren't really a whole ton of resources, you know, not like there are right now with courses and boot camps and stuff like that. A lot of stuff you really had to teach yourself. You had to reverse engineer whatever you saw on the web and try to figure out how it worked so you could recreate that. Man, exactly. I mean, that is 100% true, you know, trying to figure out how <laughs> mouse trails were a big deal in the 2000s. So trying to figure <laughs> out how to <laughs> um, flash intros, you know, how do they do this? How do they make these vector objects and how is it moving across the screen? It, it, there was no, there were no books. It was, yeah. Hey, well, let me just start writing code. And that's where it all began. And it, it was, it was fascinating to just be a part of the, the beginning of all of this right Mm -hmm. so yeah i mean so being here now and seeing the transformation of design and what it means to be in this industry and how 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 much more resources are available to to up-and-coming designers is absolutely remarkable and you know it's, it's amazing to see now one thing i saw that was interesting when i was doing my research is that you went to oakwood which I don't know if a lot of people are familiar with oakwood i'm familiar with oakwood because i'm from alabama um but what what was the journey for you going from all the way from Vallejo, California to Huntsville, Alabama, where Oakwood is? Yep. Enter to learn, depart to serve. Um, so I grew up Seventh-day Adventist. You know, my father was a pastor. My uncle was a pastor. My grandfather was a pastor. And, you know, I grew up in the Seventh-day Adventist church. And um, while my parents weren't exactly strict with our schooling or... Uh, you know, what schools we went to, we always went to public schools and never, ever went to a private Christian school. It was always public. Um, they were adamant that we would be in church every Sabbath <laughs> um, to get our life right. And uh, <laughs> so when I left uh, high school, 
uh, when I graduated, my mother, you know, she put me out. She's like, look, you're going to get your act together because you're getting in too much trouble. I mean, literally, literally like the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, she sent me to my aunt and uncle in Atlanta who were doing really well. Oh, wow. Where I had a cousin there. And, you know, he had been going to uh, Pine Forge and all the Adventist schools and was going to Oakwood. And so they said, hey, we've got connections at Oakwood. We'll get you in there. And within days, I was accepted into Oakwood and started my journey into chemical engineering for my first year of study. Is that what you ended up graduating with or did you, you change your, oh, no. your course of study? Okay, so now the story gets interesting. So <laughs> the first year I taught, <laughs> GPA skyrocketed, got on the dean's list, was doing great. Um, and then uh, through the national, I can't remember what it's called, but it's like Black Engineers or something. I, I, oh, I, NSBE, yes. National Society of Black Engineers. Yes. I had an opportunity to um, interview for an internship at NASA and went there, interviewed, went really well. But during the interview process, as I'm talking to them, I was asking about schooling and what it would take. And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, after doing seven years here, then you'll move on to this and you can become you'll do an apprenticeship and all this other stuff. It would take years, like almost a decade before I would even make like 70,000. I was like, this is out. There is no way I'm doing that. I could be a truck driver and make more money. So I was like, I'm going to change my degree. So I decided to try uh, commercial art my second year. And there was no, again, there was no digital design. It was all just strictly photography and layout and color theory as a part of that program. Um, Mm -hmm. Midway through that second year, though, my grandfather got sick. And my grandmother called me from Vallejo and said, hey, grandpa's sick. No one in the family's helping. Um, I don't know what to do. And immediately I said, okay, you know what? I'll be there. I dropped everything, left school, took care of my grandfather for the next seven months. And when he passed, I figured, uh, you know, I've missed too much school. So it started working. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah. So never really graduated. Just was on the right track, was doing the right things. And life happened. Yeah. So then there was this lull for a couple of years before kind of got a break to get into PR at Cartoon Network. And from there, kept studying design and then got a bigger break at IBM mm-hmm. working under Ian Heaton, who is still there to this day, which is unbelievable. Wow. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, he said my portfolio is terrible and it's the worst work he's seen, but he liked the hunger. <laughs> And gave me an opportunity. And in in fact, um, I sat in his office. So he had this giant desk that he had removed and set up two desks so that I could sit right next to him and learn the ropes. It was amazing. Wow. Yeah. Like a real apprenticeship. Yeah. It was it was amazing. It was amazing. What did those sort of early moments of your career teach you? I think the biggest thing that that taught me was t- two things. The answer will always be no if you never ask. Two, give people a chance. So oftentimes, you know, when I'm mentoring young designers that are getting into the game or when I'm talking to designers on my team about, you know, expectations of their role and what they should be doing or how they can grow, you know, I'm always looking at opportunities to help them along or to um, put them under my wing and shepherd them along. Even when people might say, Hey, they're not ready for this or this work doesn't look that great. I'm always 
trying to give people a chance Mm -hmm. because that's all it took for me. And maybe in the moment that I'm with them, I can help them and propel them through to the next phase of their career. Or even in that moment of just saying, yeah, I'll I'll help you out. Um, Even if they choose to move on or maybe they don't stay with me or whatever, but um, just being able to give them a chance is the biggest thing. Um, And then encouraging them to always try, like, don't, don't worry about the skill set that you have, because if you're worried about what somebody might think, yeah, you're not going to get the job. But if you say, hey, I think I can do this. I, I, I really believe I can do this. And I want to try my best at it. If you just give me a chance, I can grow. Do those things. So those two elements, the one, never stop asking, never stop hustling. And the other, as a lead, as you move up that line, as you rise up, reach back, help people out, pull them along. Yeah. So from what I've seen from, you know, again, doing research about you, you've worked pretty much across, I feel like, the spectrum of what one can do with design. You've worked in corporate design. You had your own studio for a while. You worked at Agency Life. Now you're working at like some of the top tech companies in the world. When you look back kind of at your career across all of this, what do you wish you would have known when you started? Uh. (laughs) <laughs> the power of staying put. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, th- there's beauty in saying I've done it all, but that, that comes at a price, right? And that, you know, had I planted roots and stayed put at a few places, you know, maybe my career would be in a different place. Um, maybe my skill set would be in a different place. Uh, but because I was hungry, because I started out with this idea of, oh, I can do anything. And I just wanted to try everything and taste everything. This my career was a buffet of options, right? I could go to startup, I could go to corporate, I could do this. It just it was so exciting. So I just kept doing that. If if I could tell myself, my 20-year-old self now, like, hey, I would, t- I would tell myself, look, just just ride this out for a little while. Just stay another couple of years, see what happens here um, versus jumping around. That, that's definitely what I'd say. Uh, but it was an amazing journey for sure. It's interesting that you you mentioned that because I'm I'm recalling actually a conversation I just had with a previous guest uh, who mentioned that right when he got out of school, he ended up working for a place and he stayed put for a while. I think he said he stayed put there for about six years, uh, which in the design industry, staying in one place for six years is pretty much a lifetime yeah. when you think about how fast things move with technology and stuff. Uh, but he mentioned, I think, you know, that. He felt like he was growing, but not stretching, if that makes any sense. That makes sense. Like he was getting, you know, better and more proficient in the work, but didn't feel like he was really challenging himself and then eventually ended up kind of moving on. But one thing that I hear about, particularly when it comes to millennials, is about, you know, job hopping. You know, you work at one place for a few months and another place for a year and some change, and then you work somewhere else. And uh, the perception is that, you know, the person can't be tied down or they can't have any sort of, I guess, uh, stability with being at one place for too long because they're kind of always looking for for the next best thing. And so it's interesting when you say that you wish you kind of would have stayed put for a while, because I almost feel like the fact that you were able to go to so many places has been such an advantage for you. You're able to see design from many different facets and many different types of experiences. Yeah, that's true. So there are levels to it, right? So I, I, for, for sure in my 20s, I think, and anybody in their 20s, if you're listening, if you're in your 20s and early 30s, jump, like move around as much as possible. But as you start hitting your mid 30s, 
start writing it out a little while. Give it two, three years um, before moving into the next phase. So as you get later into your 30s and moving into your 40s, you should be fairly settled by that point. Um, whereas I was moving around quite a bit, still trying to figure out where I wanted to be, still trying to figure out what made sense. So yeah, so I, you know, I, I wouldn't say stay there forever. Like to your point of the previous guest, mm-hmm. right out of school and staying at a place for six years—that's that's a long time. But that being said, Julie Zhao, she's here. She's she leads creative here at Facebook, and she was an intern right out of college and has been here for what 12, 13, 14 years. So I mean, there's it depends on how invested you are and yeah, you know where you want to take that. So I. Six in one hand, half dozen in the other. Part of me says, stay a little bit, move as necessary, <laughs> um, but don't chase money. That I will definitely say, don't chase money. Don't chase money. Ever. I mean, I think certainly, um, yeah. Well, actually, no, elaborate on that a little bit more. Because one thing that I know people are trying to do when they make these job hops or, or go from position to position is so they can sort of level themselves up in their, not just in their career, but also just to make more money. Sure. I think that the biggest drawback to that is if you had stayed at a place for three years and showed your competency, shown the impact that you can make within an organization, continue to grow inside of an organization that pays in dividends over time versus having to job hop to get that because you're resetting every time you job hop. Mm-hmm. That's one of the biggest challenges. The other side of that is just uh, a little tidbit of knowledge my mother gave me which was if you always chase the money, you will forever be lost. So people will, you know, I see people doing that now. They're trying all types of, of, you know, get rich quick schemes or if I just do this and make a little more here, um, you know, they might consider that hustling, but you're just, it's almost like (laughs) they're addicted to the game and not really settling in and saying, this is what I can do with my career and myself and where I want to take this. And so, there's more money to be made staying put and showing impact mm-hmm. versus job hopping all over the place. Cause that lends itself to credibility. The longer you stay in there with the troops, the more that people see that you're, you're invested um, in making something right. And especially during those hard times, especially when it's not ideal and you know, the organization is changing and people are coming and going. If, you, if they can see you as that rock, Again, that will pay out in dividends in the long run, more than it would if you were to go somewhere else. What's the most memorable place where you've worked? Honestly, RGA. Okay. Our RGA was a game changer for me, and it still remains that. How so? During a time when everybody was focused on simply making websites, simply making these one-off experiences, they were building um, platforms of integrated ideas it wasn't just here's a landing page and here's a launch site it was the it was these massive integrated campaigns and product launches all wrapped into one right and it was beautiful to see that because it wasn't just we're launching this one thing and yeah moving on to the next client it was no this is going to be a several years long engagement that means building a product a physical product that can track where you're running um, and report that back to a, an app on your computer or your phone and do all these different things. It was it was an amazing experience to see a company take the learnings from 
the early days of print to movie production to doing graphics and special effects for movies and then taking that into the digital space and then turning that into this much broader product thing was amazing because no one was doing that at the time. No one was doing that. Sounds like they really sort of pioneered that because I feel like that's that's something a lot of companies do, whether it's an advertising agency or even, you know, maybe a company like Facebook. Oh, yeah. No, they're doing it now for sure. But back in 2000, what, 2006, 7, 8, mm-hmm. no one was doing that. Um, I mean, Facebook was just getting off the ground. And here's, you know, uh, Bob Greenberg saying, hey, you know, we should be thinking about platforming and building these larger integrated systems. You know, I've worked on projects at um, for HBO is a great exa- example, HBO on broadband. That product lasted for eight years before it was redesigned. And even in the redesign, they still use features and components and gestures that we created back in 2007. You know, so it, it was an game-changing experience for me. So Melvin, throughout your career, I'm sure you've probably not only worked on teams, but also built teams, led teams, et cetera. How do you ensure when you're sort of building teams that you're also keeping like diversity in mind? So great question. So that that is always top of mind for myself. So as a African-American male um, who started out in this industry pretty much on his own and without seeing anyone else that looked like him, except for two other brothers, John Ferguson (laughs) and Chris Hayes, who worked with me at IBM. Past that, I didn't see anybody else in this industry. So one of the things I look for when I'm looking at candidates' resumes is, you know, am I looking... I, I, I intentionally reach out to the community that I'm from, right? So my network runs pretty deep with a plethora of minorities in uh men and women in the industry. So I'll reach out to them and say, hey, I'm looking for opportunities. I'm looking for not opportunities. I'm looking for designers to fill roles within my organization. Um, so that's always top of mind. Always top of mind. Uh, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about giving people a chance. Um, oftentimes, many of these folks won't get that chance where someone else might, they might not, simply because of the color of their skin, simply because they are a woman. Um, and I've made it my mission to make sure I give them a chance. So even as you're, you know, building these teams and sort of reaching back and, and uh, of course, bringing people up to the, the level where you're at, uh, it's good that you're kind of keeping in mind that diversity is something that is important, especially as you go between different types of companies. Because I would imagine, you know, a lot of the conversation around diversity in tech seems to mostly be at sort of big tech companies, but mm-hmm. you really don't hear about that in the advertising space, although certainly there is a lot in the advertising space as it relates to that level of inequity, but um, you don't hear those same kinds of conversations, or maybe they're not as vocal as they are in tech. I think the advertising agency is far more open to come as you are, right? Mm -hmm. As long as the work is dope, no one cares what you look like. You can come in every day in a giraffe suit. As long as you're pixel perfect with your designs, as long as your code is crisp and clean, and doesn't take up weight and doesn't slow down the machine, do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. I think the the challenge in big tech is, you know, it it grew from a place of, and I got to be careful how I say this, but it grew from a place of like bro culture. Yeah. And bro culture breeds bro culture. And it just keeps growing and growing. Well, that's, I mean, that's fair though. Yeah, that's, that's, that's fair. You know, and 
so it's it's that where it's not necessarily like that in agencies. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's still a good old boy bro culture in some in some agency environments. But they understood far sooner than the tech world that diversity is what makes the world go round. You know, when you're going to pitch clients in Atlanta or New York or Chicago or Boise, Idaho, or even overseas, to show up with a team full of just, you know, one race or one gender is not a good look, right? Hmm. And I think agencies quickly understood. Now, granted, I have no evidence to support this, no actual data. This is all <laughs> male science. <laughs> um, but I think they, they understood that rather quickly, uh, that having a diverse team means you can have the best output. Um, and it's a good look to show up with, into a meeting with, you know, uh, women as creative directors, uh, black men or women as design leads or design directors. Um, it shows the breadth of the organization that they're taking input and ideas from all sides and all cultures and different walks of life. That means a lot to clients these days. I don't know why it's taking them so long to figure this out. I feel like it's taking so long because the people in tech don't want to give up the power that they've accrued so quickly. Because mm. really, I mean, the tech industry has boomed. I mean, really, I'm trying to think like the browser wars were like the mid-90s or so. So we're talking like about what, like about 25, 30-ish years of tech really like ruling the roost in that respect. A lot of these people have come up in the power very quickly, which is different from other industries where power is gained, I think, you know, very slowly, unless you're rich. Mm. But um, I just don't think they want to give it up because if they have to look and see what's on the other side of it, they know that there's probably not much there mm. outside of the privilege that's been afforded to them through, you know, kind of working through big tech. Mm. That's a great observation. Who are some of your influences? Oh, good one. Um, you know, it's hard to say. I, I look to a lot of the people around me. You know, there's a one of the directors here, Dantley Davis, is um, is amazing. You know, I look to him for guidance and advice. Uh, Chip Gross, he's out there in Atlanta. I mean, there's all the, you know, all the design beacons of the past, but it's one thing to see that. And it's another to see the people in your life doing amazing. Jabari Adisa is another one. Albert, as you mentioned earlier, seeing how he's grown. You know, I look to them and see the paths that they're creating, right? Um, oftentimes forging new ground. You know, Tim Allen is a great example of that. At Microsoft, right? Yes. You know, so he is amazing. And watching all these um these amazing, talented individuals do, um, people of color doing things that, you know, 10 years ago were unthinkable is inspiring. And so I, I look to them as guiding lights. Okay, they're out there forging a path. I can do the same. Who are some of the mentors that have helped you out along the way throughout your career? Um, quite a few, actually. Uh, and surprisingly, a lot of women. Um, I, I've gravitated to a lot of creative female leads that have really pushed me in the right direction. You know, Carla Shavaria is one. She's over at Google right now. She was a creative director 
at RGA for many years before uh, moving around and leading different teams at, um, was it MakerBot? Don't they do the 3D printer, I think? Yeah, yep. MakerBot. Mm-hmm. And then she, you know, she led a team there. And then she went to Facebook, was leading teams here. She's been at Google. Once she was at Google for a while, then left and went right back. And she's there now. Um, Chris Kiger is another one. Karina Raleigh. Um, they have done a lot to help grow my career as a designer. Um, and position me in different places. A lot of times I've worked underneath all of them and, and seeing like, wow. Uh, my boss is executive director and it's a woman that's like four feet tall and she's totally badass. Like, this is amazing, <laughs> you know? Um, and cause they can identify with the struggle, you know, being a woman lead and working in this industry and knowing that potentially they're not getting paid as their male counterparts, potentially not being taken as seriously as their male counterparts. Um, mm-hmm. They understand the struggle of being a minority in this game. And I've had many a truthful conversation, like an honest conversation with each of them about that. Um, and so it's been, it's, they're amazing. And so I look, I look, they've been amazing mentors over the years. And to this day, to this day, still reach out to them for advice. Now, among all of the things that you've done in your career, uh, you're also a husband and a father. Mm-hmm. Do your kids want to follow in your footsteps and become a designer like dad? Um, you know, I don't, I don't know. It's, I don't see them doing anything that I do, which is great. I'm actually <laughs> glad to see that. <laughs> um, no, like, you know, my daughter wants to, all the kids want to draw. My daughter, my oldest is my daughter, Isabella, and my, well, it was the last child, but now this, this, Third child, Matthew, are both prolific artists. Uh, Matthew likes drawing comics, and he'll take up pages after pages, drawing panel after panel. Amazing comics, and he's only nine, and it's incredible what he does. Um, my daughter is really good at drawing anime characters somehow, and you know she's picking up Japanese from it. It's incredible. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And then there's my other son, Elijah, and you know he's trying to figure out what fits in between all that. You know he's very studious with school and he has desires of, you know, one day being a police officer. That's, I mean, that's his words, you know? Uh, so no, I don't think they, I try not to bring work home. I try not to do design stuff around them. I let them see the fruits of it. You know, the trips we'll take or, um, new clothes, new shoes, games, stuff like that, but never any other design stuff, never letting them see me jump into sketch or Photoshop or all this other stuff like this figure out what what works for you in life and be successful at that you don't have to do what daddy does you don't have to make the money that daddy makes either that doesn't mean success success is what you're happy with um and what brings you joy and if that whatever it is makes you happy i'm in full support of that and that's what the kids know where do you see design going in the future i feel like you have such a unique vantage point with where you're at right now not just in your career but just from where you've come from as well Uh, Where do you see this industry going in the future? This is going to sound crazy, (laughs) but I think a lot of it, (laughs) this is going to sound super crazy, but I think a lot of it is going to be automated. You know, you're seeing, just the other day I saw a demo of someone just loosely drawing a couple shapes in Sketch and then using machine learning and AI, it made 
a beautiful image out of that um photorealistic image um mm. there are sites like this is not a face or this is not a real person this is not a real apartment listing this is not a real dog i think that's the other one um there are so many versions of these things where machine learning is taking over and building environments and world and creating worlds and creating things that at some point we're going to get to a place where um building advertisements and campaigns are going to be just well i want to make a campaign like this and the computer can do it you know uh, using machine learning uh, there will always be somebody at the helm guiding the overall I guess, design strategy and marketing. Um, but even then, <laughs> that can be solved with algorithms. Um, I, I, I know it sounds a little doomsday the way I'm presenting it, but... <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, Basically, there's not going to be any more humans in design, essentially. Yeah, we will all be consumers of product and engaged in it. And I think what that means is design will eventually become... Well, it might be generated, but it, it will become democratized where I can control my own environment. Um, I can define the kind of ads and style of ads I want to see um, beyond just saying, show me more or less. Right. Um, I, I think that's where I see it headed. I, I, I think there at some point this will just become an automated thing. And we'll just be consuming all this great information and can be in more control of our lives or less. Um, but I think the days of sitting behind a computer and pushing pixels in Sketch or Photoshop, I'm not saying they're numbered as in like a few years, but uh, I can see it wrapping up in the future for sure. I know it sounds crazy. <laughs> no, I was going to say, speaking of the future, I was just going to ask you like, where do you see yourself in the future? Like in the next five years or so, what kind of work would you like to be doing? Uh-huh. You know, I would like to be on a beach in Cuba selling seashells <laughs> <laughs> to folks. <laughs> oh, man. Um, I don't know. You know, I, I have let the winds of chance and fate drive a lot of what I do. And all I do is point the ship in a direction and say, I want to try for this thing. And I see what happens next. You know, right now I'm at Facebook and I'm enjoying it and I'm writing it out. Um, trying to build beautiful things and experiences for users and I'm loving it. And so I'll, I'll see what happens next. Okay. Well, just to kind of, you know, wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? Sure. Um, so I don't broadcast a lot of my information online, but <laughs> Uh, you can certainly go to my website. It's uh, melvinlewishale.com. You can start there. Uh, I do have an Instagram. One is private, but one is public, and it's all about cars. It's haleyeah.m5. <laughs> <laughs> um, or you can find me on LinkedIn. Melvin Hale on LinkedIn. All right. Sounds good. Well, Melvin Hale, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I know we didn't have a ton of time to talk, but I really am glad that you were able to kind of tell your story about where you came from and how you got to where you are right now, because I think it's important, certainly for our audience to know that there's more than one way to get into design, more than one way to get into tech, and that where you start out is not necessarily, you know, where you'll end up. And I think it's really important to also communicate that, 
you know, being yourself and having that hustle and that drive will will get you far as long as you apply it yep. correctly. And I certainly think that's uh, that's been the case with your career. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. No, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, Maurice. Thoughts of love are in your mind. And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Melvin Hale and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Melvin and his work through the links in the show notes at glitch.com forward slash revision path. Revision Path is brought to you by Glitch, the friendly community where everyone can discover and create the best stuff on the web. Check us out at glitch.com. We're also powered by Simplecast, the easiest way for podcasters to publish and distribute audio on the internet. Make sure you check the show notes for a link to sign up for a 14-day free trial. This episode was edited by Keisha TK Dutez and produced by Deanna Testa. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you liked this episode, then let more people know about it by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It takes about a minute or so to do. It really helps spread the word about Revision Path everywhere because everyone uses Apple Podcasts. <laughs> you can also find us, though, on Spotify. We're on Google Podcasts. We're on SoundCloud or wherever you find your favorite shows. And also make sure you're following us on social media as well, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We're on all of those. Just search for Revision Path. Oh, and don't forget again about our audience survey. Closes on May the 1st, revisionpath.com forward slash survey. We really want to hear from you. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>